the heart of New York City, near Washington Square. In 1911, large winds were cold and bare. A fire broke out in a building ten stories high. And 146 young girls in those flames did die. We should never forget what what happened on that fateful day on March 25th, uh, 1911. One of the most tragic days in U.S. labor history. 146 women and girls died in the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. The question is always, why has this one attracted so much attention? Why has it still moved so many people? A lot of workforces that are invisible, that people don't really think about, are increasingly becoming the majority of the workforce today. Hi, and welcome to Labor History Today. On today's show, we remember the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, the deadliest industrial disaster in the history of New York City, and one of the deadliest in U.S. history. From Union Strong, the podcast from the New York State AFL-CIO, a day in history that changed workplace safety. A look back at the Triangle Shirtwaist fire through an interview with Edgar Romney, the Secretary Treasurer of Workers United. Then, from labor history in two, industrial murder at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. Next, historian Annalise Orlek discusses the labor rights activism of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory workers on Democracy Now! And we wrap up with Ajam Poo, director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, discussing the importance of protecting, and not marginalizing, our domestic workers today. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is Labor History Today. In the heart of New York City, near Washington Square, in 1911, March winds were cold and fair, a fire broke And 146 young girls in those flames did die. March 25th is the 111th anniversary of the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire in Lower Manhattan, one of the deadliest industrial tragedies in U.S. history. On today's podcast, we're revisiting an episode we called A Day in History That Changed Workplace Safety. It's a look back at the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire through an interview with Edgar Romney, the Secretary-Treasurer of Workers United. For the New York State AFL-CIO, I'm Darcy Wells, and this is Union Strong. I ran out. I went to the door we go out with, but the fire was there, so I went to the door that was closed. I didn't know that was That was Pauline Pepe, a survivor of the fire, speaking at a commemoration in 1986. People going down the steps. We all tumbled one right after another, and I saw people throwing themselves from the window. It was a fire that took the lives of 146 people, a fire that changed workplace safety and changed the labor movement. Today, we talked to a union leader who was very involved in keeping that history alive. My name is Edgar Romney, and I'm Secretary Treasurer of Workers United SEIU, formerly the International Ladies Government Workers Union, which was the union that was trying to organize those workers in 1911 on that 
faithful day. I'm going to move the front line. Edgar Romney is the secretary-treasurer of Workers United, which represents over 100,000 workers in the textile, distribution, commercial laundry, and food service industries. He spent his career fighting for workers' rights in the labor movement. He joined the former International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union in 1962 as a shipping clerk and was an active shop steward. He later became an organizer and business agent with the union. For many years, Mr. Romney has been involved in international trade union work for social and economic justice for apparel and textile workers around the world. He's been a leader in the fight against global sweatshops. And Workers United is described as the union of the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, which is why we asked Secretary-Treasurer Romney to join us on this podcast to take a look back at the historical Triangle Shirtwaist Fire and how that tragedy forever changed workplace safety and made the labor movement much stronger in the process. And Mr. Romney, I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. Well, thank you very much. It's certainly nice to be with you. So let's talk a little bit about the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire was one of the deadliest industrial tragedies in U.S. history. It was a true sweatshop. Can you talk a little bit about the conditions, what they were like inside that factory? Yes, back in 1909, 1910, and 1911, when the apparel industry was growing uh, in this city and indeed in this country, uh, many workers were working under sweatshop conditions. And what that basically meant was that they were working very long hours with very low pay, no benefits to speak of, and very few health and safety regulations. And that's one of the reasons why when the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire actually occurred, people were not able to get out of that building because actually there were very few health and safety laws that were actually enforced, and those doors were locked and those workers were not able to get out. So the conditions were very, very bad in the apparel industry back in, in, at that time. And these were um, young immigrant women, some of them teenagers, right? That is correct. Some of them were young as 13, 14, 15 years old. Uh, and unfortunately, they had to make a dreadful decision, many of them did, of the 146 people that died in that fire to actually uh, jump out of that window. And obviously, uh, they perished when they, they hit the sidewalk. Many of them, uh, they couldn't get out. Uh, they tried to go. Some of them were able to get down the elevator until that burned. Some of them tried uh, when the doors actually did get open. Uh, some of them tried to get down the stairway, but many of them died there as well. But yes, there was certainly a lot of a lot of young immigrant Jewish and Italian young women uh, who passed away in that tragic fire. Now, I know one of the issues, too, was the response by the uh, fire department. The trucks that, first of all, they had the netting, apparently, that couldn't support the weight of the workers as they jumped out the window, right? Well, there were a number of issues as they jumped out the window. Uh, the ladders uh, back in those days were unable to get all the way up to the floors that uh, the eighth and ninth floor uh, to be able to carry those workers down. But there were so many of them that fi that factory had about on those several floors several hundred workers, and so there would just never there never would have been enough time. But one of the things that it did happen as a result of that in regard to the fire department. You know, and again, we're talking about 1911, the turn of the century. You know, they realized that they had to build better equipment and get ladders, you know, get trucks that had ladders that were able to support people and certainly going up to higher floors. And uh, I know when you have the anniversary, which is marked every year on March 25th, 
That's a pretty emotional moment, isn't it, when you reenact that and bring in a fire truck? Those of you that have been with us in years past know that the most moving part of the ceremony historically has been the raising of the ladder by the fire department and then laying that is of a flower. And one of the things that we do every year in commemoration of this event is to, to have the ladder raised today because obviously it goes up way higher than the floors that it did at that time back in 1911. And, uh, and we ring, lay a flower for each and announce each one of the people who perished in that deadly fire and the fire department rings the bell. God help us if we ever forget what happened here. Can I have ladder 20, please raise the aerial. Today we remember Anna Cohen, Sarah Cooper, Michalina Coronado. So it's an emotional day, but we think that it's extremely important for us to continue to do this, not only to remember what happened to those young workers, those 146 people that perished in, in that fire, but how it went on to change safety and health and labor laws in the city and the state and in this country. And one of the people who was instrumental in making sure some of those changes took place was Frances Perkins. And I know that um, there's a tremendous oral history of her. A terrible industrial accident, uh, which burned out the contents of a, of a ninth and 10th floor uh, loft building uh, factory. Talking about how she felt, she happened to be, she was a young social worker at the time, happened to be having some tea with a friend near the factory when they ran to the scene and they witnessed the horrific choice that so many of these people, young women made during the fire to jump, jump to their deaths. The net broke. She had a terrible distance and the, um, the, um, the weight of the bodies was so great at the speed at which they were traveling that they broke through the net. And every one of them was killed. Everybody who jumped was killed. Um, can you talk to me about her role following the fire? Well, she, as you re mentioned, that she was actually having tea at a, uh, at a restaurant close by, and, and she actually was able to witness some of the you know, tragedies that happened there, some of the w women that actually jumped out the window. And as we know that Frances Perkins was, uh, was an activist, you know, prior to her becoming the Secretary of Labor, you know, uh, for the United States. But she was one of the people that was extremely instrumental in advocating and pushing uh, for changes, you know, in the health and safety laws for workers in the workplace and so she did an extraordinary job in terms of making sure you know it took a while to obviously get some of the things accomplished uh, that she wanted to and do. It proved to be a most educative experience. Uh, th this, this factory investigating commission was continued from year to year till it sat for four years and its report but she was very, very instrumental in getting some of those laws changed for worker safety and health and, and protections. Now, days after the fire, or maybe the day after, I'm, I'm not sure, New York's garment district workers walked off the job as a result of that, right? Well, many, many, that, at that time, the city had about uh, a couple hundred thousand garment workers in and around in the city of New York. And in protest of what happened there and in commemoration of what happened, in support of those workers and support of workers coming together to, to form to, and to, to continue to form and to join the, the, the union, the ILGWU at the time, uh, workers, over 100,000 workers took to the street. 
uh, to demonstrate that the protests what happened on that fateful day. And as a result of that, that's one of the times that the union had its biggest growth in the city of New mm. York because there was just a great demand, not only by those workers, but supported by a number of legislators and politicians, activists, and other community people so that workers could get better protection in, in the apparel and garment industry. Well, it certainly was then successful in bringing attention to poor working conditions and workplace safety in general. What what are some of the things that changed as a result of that tragic fire? Well, I think that the important things to recognize that changed was that the city and state officials realized that that doors should not, could not be locked from the outside and inside workers could not get out. So that was the beginning of the changes of laws where factories had to have access to be able to get out of a building in the event of a fire. So that that, that was one of the, the major changes. One of the others was that companies were required to have fire extinguishers, you know, in their, in their factories or buckets of water, okay, or something to be able to extinguish fires uh, uh, when they happen. Uh, the other thing that uh, was a result of that, uh, fire escapes, okay, were, were mandated to be put on buildings so people, could, you know, were able to get out. Uh, you know, that was also the beginning of the process of getting fire uh, sprinkler systems in buildings as new buildings were built. They had to be built with, uh, as they got bigger and taller, and you know, many buildings were made where windows did not open. You know, there was a great conscious uh, level on a number of people, particularly uh, the activists and, and our politicians, that more had to be done to protect workers in the workplace. And Mr. Romney, I know you were the MC of the event um, in New York City to mark the anniversary. What was your main message on that day? What did you want people to be thinking about and focusing on moving forward? Well, a couple of things. One, that we should never forget what what happened on that fateful day on March 25th, uh, 1911. And we must always remember what happened and never forget it. But in addition to that, we continue to advocate for worker and health safety in today's workplace today. There are a number of people that have have died in industrial accidents, uh, in construction sites, and we continue to advocate and to stress the importance that it's that we need to continue to work to improve health and safety environments. And, uh, and that's, so that's a continuation. We never want to forget what happened to those people, but we also advocate for workers today to continue to be sure that we protect them in the workplace. The other thing that we do is that we advocate for workers that have uh, of different parts of the world, particularly in in part of our, my message is that part of the the workers in, in garment factories around the world that work for big brands and re- retailers in places like China and Vietnam, Bangladesh, uh, Cambodia, that those workers also, uh, that those brands, okay, take responsibility for the conditions that those workers work around the world. So it's not only just commemorating and remember of what happened on, on March 25, uh, 1911, but also to make sure that we continue to advocate and fight for worker protection in the workplace in this country and around the world. Fantastic. Well, we know unions continue to fight today for workplace safety and to ensure that uh, people have a voice in the workplace. So, Mr. Romney, we want to thank you for all that you do, and thank you very much for being on our podcast. It is certainly my pleasure. Thank you. Plotsky, 15. Laura Brunetti, 17. And Abraham 
If you'd like to hear more of the oral history from the Shirtwaist Factory Fire, we'll include a link to the Industrial and Labor Relations School at Cornell University where the archives are stored on our show notes. I want to thank the Keele Center at Cornell as well. They collect and preserve these source materials that we used in this podcast today. Joining me now is our digital director, Kevin Eitzman. Kevin, the amount of material at that Cornell site is really impressive, isn't it? It is, and, and it's good to have all that history that we keep alive and we keep it in the memory and we keep talking about it because, uh, you know, as we know around the world and, and even New York, worker safety has not gone away. And it's important to, to keep honoring that memory and then fight for those who are you know, struggling today. Mm -hmm. So go to the site, check it out, and you'll get lots of good information. Uh, for the New York State AFL-CIO, I'm Darcy Wells. Stay union, stay strong. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1911 marking one of the most tragic days in U.S. labor history. 146 women and girls died in the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. The Triangle Factory was owned by Max Blanc and Isaac Harris. They ran the sweatshop on the 8th and 9th floor of a building in Manhattan. Most of their employees were young Italian and Jewish European immigrant workers who did not speak English. The Triangle owners disregarded safety precautions and even went so far as to lock their employees in the building during the day. On that fateful Saturday, the workday was drawing to a close and the women were preparing to leave. A fire broke out in a rag bin and spread quickly. The women ran to the stairway, only to find the doors blocked and locked. Tragically, only one elevator was working. Firefighters arrived on the scene, but their ladders and hoses were too short to reach the women. One survivor, Celia Walker Friedman, recalled the horror of the fire. The door to the stairway was completely blocked by big crates of blouses and goods. She escaped by sliding down an elevator cable. Desperate women tried to jump down the elevator's shaft and out the windows. Horrified onlookers watched as these women fell to their deaths. In the aftermath of the fire, the International Lady Garment Workers Union organized an official day of mourning. A march to honor the dead and demand changes in the industry drew 80,000 to the streets of New York. The owners faced criminal charges, but were not convicted. They settled civil suits, paying only $75 for each woman who died. The fire became a rallying call for union organizing and workplace safety. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. Next, historian Annalise Orlick discusses the labor rights activism of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory workers on Democracy Now! Annalise Orlick, explain what happened um, on that fateful day, on March 25th, 1911. Why were these workers locked out and in? Well, the, the owners of the Triangle Company, Harrison Blank, claimed that they had a problem with theft. Uh, and so they locked the, the door out of which most of the workers left to prevent, supposedly to prevent them from, from taking fabric uh, and, uh, and stealing from the company. 
Afterwards, when it came to trial, the owners admitted that the most they might possibly have lost was $15 and $20 a year. So that's the number that ultimately cost all of those workers' lives. There were no smoking signs in the factory, but uh, the cutters, who were kind of the elite in the shop, were known to ignore that, and, uh, and perhaps one of them did. It's not clear exactly what happened, but someone flicked an ash, uh, and it caught uh, in what was probably more than a ton of fabric scraps. There had been more than 100,000 shirtwaists made uh, since the last time the manufacturers had cleaned scraps out of the shop. And uh, the young women, it's worth picking up on, on what Steve said, had been warning about those scraps. They'd been warning about them for months. There were hundreds of complaints on file at the Women's Trade Union League about the dangers of these factories and, and the likelihood that fire would start. And indeed, there had been a lethal fire in Newark just a few months before the Triangle Fire that killed 26 young women and injured many others. So they were aware of this danger, and what happened was even worse than they could have predicted the fire spread through the grass linen out of which the fabric, out of which the shirtwaists were made. It was very flammable. And it spread so quickly and so horribly and with so much heat uh, that there were actually skeletons of young women at their, fire, their sewing machines who were discovered after the fire. So some never made it away from their desks. Uh, others tried to leave. Uh, there were two uh, doors to the to the factory. One was blocked by flames. The other one uh, was probably locked, and and that was the reason that that so many were left with the horrible choice uh, of either being of perishing in fire or jumping out the window. Some of them rushed out onto the fire escape, about 25 of them. There were already uh, people from the eighth floor on the fire escape. It collapsed, uh, and, and that was the first terrible scene of death that New Yorkers witnessed uh, from below. But in a way, even more awful, uh, you can't judge these things, but was this revelation that Frances Perkins later described that what had first appeared to be fabric that the manufacturers were throwing out the window, people thought they were trying to save their good fabric. People soon realized we're, we're, we're workers, young women, a few young men. And uh, within a half hour, many hundreds, if not thousands, on the street below had watched this carnage and really vividly experienced the terror. In the aftermath, they experienced a different kind of, of terror, which was that the bodies of the young workers lay on the streets for several days as New Yorkers came by to try to identify their loved ones. And that, that makeshift morgue almost made the whole city feel like a makeshift morgue. Uh, eventually, it was moved to the 26th Street Pier. And again, for days, New Yorkers were treated to images of, of family members grieving, collapsing, coming out from having tried to identify uh, their lost loved and ones. And who these women were? Well, I think that's the most important thing to remember, because there have been so many tragedies in the 20th century. The question is always, why has this one attracted so much attention? Why has it still moved so many people? These women were the strikers of 1909, 1910, and they had gotten a lot of coverage in the press. And they had been quoted, sometimes 15-, and 16-, and 17-year-old girls talking about their constitutional rights and their, their rights to picket without being beaten and marching on City Hall with banners in Yiddish and Italian and English saying, we are not slaves. 
and abolish slavery. And they were saucy. The management had attempted to put prostitutes on the line to sully the reputations of these girls. And instead of them saying, oh, no, 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 we're not prostitutes, don't mistake us, they said, better to be a streetwalker than a scab. It's an honest profession. <laughs> So they had attracted the attention and the affection of the city, and as Steve pointed out, uh, many people who had not previously been sympathetic to labor began to shift their their views. Even the New York Times, which had been staunchly anti-labor, began to cover the strikers with a little bit more sympathy. Partly it was the violence that was leveled against them. The leader of the strike, Clara Lemlich, had six ribs broken uh, by clubs in, during the course of the strike. There were girls who were dragged off with bloodied heads uh, in bandages. And at first, that didn't win sympathy. One judge, when a girl was dragged before him with a, with a head covered in blood, said, you are on strike against God and nature. Right? Women shouldn't be out parading themselves like this. And the, what happened to the two owners of the factory, and what kind of penalties did they receive? The trial was an interesting trial, because it's the flip side of the kind of heroic imagery that you saw of these young women before uh, the fire, during the strike. The trial was really an exercise in putting them on trial. In a sense, they were described as, as prone to panic, uh, hysterical. Their deaths were basically attributed to that hysteria and that panic. It was said that they had rushed to the door and, and blocked the door, and Who that's why— hmm? Who were they? Who were the girls? The workers, the owners. Um, Harris and Blank, Isaac um, Harris and Max Blank, they were German Jews. They had been in the country a little while longer than the, uh, than the workers, which was typical of these garment shops, although this one was, was bigger. They, they certainly had more capital to invest than, uh, you know, the, the owners of little sweatshops, which were kind of fly-by-night rented by the week. But uh, that said, they still had family working in the shops. They lost family in the shops. Uh, and they lost family in the fire. So they were not completely removed from the garment trade themselves. Nevertheless, they hired a very flashy New York attorney, Max Stoyer, who was one of these celebrity <laughs> defense attorneys. And he, and he attempted to blame the victims for, uh, for panicking? Yeah. He did. And he, and he accused them of perjury. Uh, you know, he soft-pedaled it. He said they couldn't remember. Maybe they were so hysterical that they couldn't remember what had happened to them. Uh, he brought on a wave of witnesses who had worked with the company at different times and said they had seen the door open, not that day, but that had, they had come in and out of the door. And one juror later said they believed the door was locked, but the defense attorney had introduced enough reasonable doubt. And interestingly enough, even the prosecutor uh, called the girls less intelligent than the norm. Historian Annalise Orlek discusses the labor rights activism of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory workers on Democracy Now! We wrap up with Ajem Poo, director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, discussing the importance of protecting and not marginalizing our domestic workers today. experiences of the women in the Triangle Fire were in some ways indicative of the 
economic direction of the country at that time where there was a lot of sweatshop labor, a lot of factories where women were working in low-wage, dangerous conditions. And even though they were immigrant women, it was really indicative of the sort of nature of the entire economy. And today, what you're seeing is that a lot of the sectors that immigrant workers have been working in over the last two decades or so, which used to be seen as shadow economy or marginal workforces and underground, are increasingly defining the dimension, the dynamics of the entire economy. And the, there is much of a window onto the economic health of this country as the manufacturing index was in the 20s and 30s. I work with domestic workers and they're nannies and housekeepers and caregivers for the elderly and people think that they're, people don't really think of them. They're almost invisible to your average person. And across the country, it's two and a half million women who do domestic work. And the fact that we don't think about that workforce in our economy and that we don't account for and protect and respect that workforce is really, um, not only does it not make sense, but it presents really serious problems in terms of how we understand what it takes to have a healthy economy. And I think that a lot of workforces that are invisible, that people don't really think about, are increasingly becoming the majority of the workforce today. And it's not just immigrants who are in these workforces, but it's just about everybody. from the windows trapped like a herd nowhere to go the eighth and ninth floors facing an inferno of heat and flames a living horror show young immigrants just trying to earn a living brutally exploited in a place so unforgiving one door was locked the other was blocked the elevator crashed, the fire escape collapsed Choking from the smoke, unable to breathe The fire engines came, but the ladders didn't reach That's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can help more folks find the show by liking it in your podcast app and passing it along. It's also really helpful if you leave a review. Special thanks this week to Union Strong, the podcast of the New York State AFL-CIO. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks also to the AFL-CIO for the iJam Poo video released in 2011, the 100th anniversary of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire. And to the Friday's Labor Folklore newsletter, which featured these reports, along with Saikon's Washington Square. As always, thanks to Labor History and Two, a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Our music today included Ballad of the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire by Bev Grant and the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire Song by Mike Stout. 
Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Keep making history. And see you next time. On the elders of greed, it's just another sacrifice. Working for the gap, Walmart in the rest. Places like Honduras, China, Bangladesh. 28 cents an hour, seven days a week. A prison tower in a sweatshop factory. Behind the fancy clothes and toys, they want to sell you. Hundreds of fires, they just don't tell you. After decades of struggle, made things better than before. They shut them down and move the jobs offshore. Out of sight, out of mind, they hope we never stop them. Well, they wage their class war and take us to the bottom. The triangle shirt with fire was a call. Wake up a movement, they died for us all. For a safer workplace and escape from poverty. A decent